All right, what not the podcast? Pastor Wolfmuller here, trying something different altogether again this week. I'm going to put the audio of our Sunday school class from yesterday. It's the end of our adult instruction class. We did it with the entire congregation. Uh, we finished talking about the Lord's Supper last week, so wrapping up with questions about closed communion. I wanted to talk about the liturgy and vocation and the three estates, which I did like in the last three minutes because the conversation about closed communion um, had a lot of questions, especially a discussion about theological despair. And I think this might be at the root of all of it, this idea that we can't agree on the doctrine, that there's no way, everything is understood to be opinion. So we talk a lot about that. Uh, and and here you go. So here's the audio. I'd love to hear your feedback, if this is good or bad. Problem is, it's a podcast, so you're listening on Apple or iTunes or Spotify or whatever. Probably the best way to give the feedback is to go to wolfmuller.co slash contact. You can send me an email there. I know it's a lot of work, but I would appreciate your feedback if this is helpful. Uh, or if it's not helpful, either way, uh, to know if this is um, if this is a good thing. So, so here you go. Sunday school class from St. Paul Lutheran Church, August 28th. Uh, talking about close communion. Good to see you all. Can you hear me okay? You guys have to keep me awake today. I'm tired already this morning. That first sermon wore me out. But you know what gets me going is longer sermons. I think I'm thinking a lot about, uh, I, I just have on my mind um, this installation this afternoon. So we got, install, this is installation week for us, right? So next week, uh, Pastor LeBlanc is coming, installed next Sunday, four o'clock in the afternoon. That'll be great. I mentioned at the end of the early service that he's doing the service at, uh, at Jesus' death this afternoon. So, um, because I'm going to be down at San Antonio. So I know he's he's nervous about that. The congregation says, oh, you'll be fine, you'll be fine. But it's been a while since he's done the liturgy and, and the ASL. So pr say a prayer for him this afternoon. I'm going to be down in San Antonio for the installation of uh, my dear friend, Pastor Ketchemeyer, who's called the Mount Calvary uh, down in San Antonio. Um, and so I was asking this morning, like, what is the history between you two? He... He and I go back. I, this is, I, I've been feeling the pressure. He asked me to preach his installation. And I, I've been feeling the pressure because he was the best man when Carrie and I got married in 99. And he gave the whatever the, the toast or the speech or whatever. And I still remember what he said <laughs> at our wedding reception in, that, in the toast. And I'm like, okay, now is my shot to go... And can I say something that he's going to remember 25 years from now? Answer, no. <laughs> so I've been trying to think of what to say uh, uh, for that. He, um, I think we're going to preach on Isaiah 40, which is, so we're going to celebrate. I, as a half joke, when they said, uh, hey, what what's, uh, texts do you want to preach on? I said, hey, tomorrow... The 29th is the commemoration of the beheading of John the Baptist. We could use those texts. <laughs> and so they did. <laughs> now, it actually is really quite appropriate, right? Because I think it was Pastor Ketchemeyer who told me, I used to have this kind of a joke. It wasn't really a joke. 
I mean, it's, it, maybe it's a, actually a bad joke that, you know, you'd like to, if you're going to be martyred nowadays, the pastors all kind of want to be, every pastor has in the back of their mind the idea that maybe they'll get to be martyred. They don't all admit it. You know, that's why, that's why they went to seminary. They're like, maybe I'll get a chance to be martyred. And you always want to be martyred over something nice, like confessing Christ as Lord. Is it like the old martyrs? Caesar said, hey, unless you say Lord Caesar and offer this incense, we're going to kill you. And the old martyrs would say, Jesus is Lord. And they'd throw him to the lions. That's heroic. Right? But now, nowadays, we have to get martyred for saying stuff like, God created the world. <laughs> you get its first article persecution. You get martyred for saying that marriage is a man and a woman. Or you get martyred for saying that a man is a man or a woman is a woman. And you say, yes, you'd rather have a real theological reason to get martyred. But I think it was Pastor Ketchelmeyer who reminded me, what about John the Baptist? Remember why he got, he was martyred because he was preaching marriage and he told Herod that he shouldn't have married his brother's wife this is, I mean these the Herod family was all a disaster anyways but uh Herod had gone over to Rome and he had seduced his brother Philip's wife Herodias I think it's also his niece or something who knows and uh and they got married and Herod said uh, John the Baptist said Herod that's adultery you should not you you uh You've sinned, and that's why he was in prison. And that's why, remember, <laughs> that, that Herodias' daughter, so that would have been Herod's stepdaughter, was dancing at the party, and they were all so happy about it that Herod said, tell me what you want, I'll give you anything, up to half of my kingdom. That's what the kings would do when they wanted to show off how powerful they are. They're like, ask me for anything, I'll give it to you. And so they go and conspire, and they say, we want to have John the Baptist so he got to be martyred for preaching marriage. He was martyred for preaching the sixth commandment. So John the Baptist is the, is the martyr for our day because, because this, is the, this is really the point where the culture and the church are at odds with one another on the question of marriage and gender and that whole deal, which is too bad, but it's just what, that's just a hand that the Lord has dealt us. So we got to play that hand. So, so I think the martyrdom of John the Baptist is fitting uh for especially for preaching in our own day so i don't know exactly how to preach that today but that's what i'm trying to figure out so, uh i think it was pastor ketchermeyer who told me that hey what about john the baptist what about john the baptist pastor ketchermeyer is also the one who taught me uh about this riddle in isaiah 40 which is also part of the text remember how isaiah 40 goes it's the prophecy of john the baptist i'll send a uh, messenger had no no the voice that's what the messenger's Malachi in Isaiah 40 it's the voice crying in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord that he, he your sins are pardoned your iniquity is forgiven the, your warfare is ended and the Lord it will give you double for your sins and that sounds bad at first right double for your sins like if you say it's almost like if you get caught stealing a car and, the, and you get 10 years, the Lord's going to give you 20 years. They're like double for punishment for your sins. But that's not what it means at all. The Lord has a double blessing in spite of your sin. And the double blessing is this. Not only does the Lord take away your sins, 
He gives you the righteousness of Christ. In other words, okay, so can you imagine this? Imagine that your sins are written on this whiteboard here, and you think, I need a bigger whiteboard. <laughs> and your sins are on the board. Full of all, here's all your sins. The first blessing is that the Lord erases all your sins so that those sins are not held against you. They're forgiven. But then the second blessing is the Lord writes onto the board the obedience of Jesus, his keeping the commandments, his good works, his fulfilling of the law, so that his righteousness is given to you. So that this is the doctrine of, of justification. It's not just that everything wrong that I've done has been taken away, so I'm at neutral. No, it's everything wrong I've done has been taken away, and everything right that Christ has done has been given to me. So that the Lord sees us as righteous and holy and good and perfect as Jesus himself is. Woo! That's amazing. And that's the, uh, it says it in 2 Corinthians. It says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Can you imagine this? That, that Jesus sees you as perfect and as holy as his uh, as Jesus himself is. You wouldn't believe it unless it was written down, right? I mean, it's just too good to be true. So, so that, you know, we always worry about this, like, hey, I wonder if I'm going to be able to get into heaven. And, and it, I, I think we had this a couple of weeks ago. It'll be as hard for you to get into heaven as it was for Jesus to get into heaven. <laughs> Can you imagine, you know, Jesus ascends into heaven and the angels are like, well, what are you doing here? No, the gates are thrown wide open. This is where he belongs. This is where you belong. You were clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So the Lord has given you double for all your sins. Pastor Ketchumar taught me that as well. Uh, maybe I, but I don't know if I should preach to him all the things that he told me. Maybe he forgot he told me them and then I'll be <laughs> like, wow, that was really genius. <laughs> I won't tell him that he's the one that told him. <laughs> okay. Uh, so anyway, that's today. So if anyone's hanging around San Antonio this afternoon, that'll be great. Four o'clock down there in Mount Calvary. Yes, sir, Walter? Uh, you know, Judas are back. Judas are forgiven. That's right. Children of the Heavenly Father. Safely to his wings, I gather. This is, it's beautiful, isn't it? Our, our baptism is our adoption. So it's, it's not by accident that when we're baptized, the Lord puts his name on us. I told you about my cousins, Kurt and Carl, right? Uh, they were twins. They were born and uh, my aunt and uncle adopted them. And they, so they're Kurt and Carl Wolfmuller because they're adopted into the family. They get the, they're the family name. This is how we are when we're baptized. We're, the Lord puts us in his family. That's great, Walter. Thank you. Okay. Uh, today's topic is, we're really, this is kind of a catch-up day or a catch-all day for our uh, uh, Christian basics. So we did the Lord's Supper last week, but a question lingering about um, closed communion. And then I want to talk a little bit about vocation and calling. I want to talk a little bit about the liturgy, a little bit about the three estates, and then just answer any questions you have. So this is kind of a catch-all day 
for, to, that'll end our summer series uh, for uh, new member catechism class. I think I got the vicar talked into a new idea of mine. Since he's not here, that'll be good. So he can't contradict that. He's, he's at preaching, I think, at the Mission Church in Bastrop today. I, I think he's there. And he sent me a sermon last night. And uh, I didn't want to tell him that his sermon was way better than mine. <laughs> oh, no. He sent me a sermon. He says, I don't like, it's a brilliant sermon. Man, oh, man. I thought about just preaching it here and not telling him. <laughs> How did he get so good at preaching so quick? I don't know. Uh, but uh, he sent me, he says, I really don't like it. And I wrote back, I, I couldn't believe how great it was. And I said, yeah, there's a few problems. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. I didn't say that. Uh, it was great. So, but he was nervous about it. He was out preaching and I think during the service, they have a, I think that's where he is in Bastion, so I miss him today. What's that? Oh, he is? Okay. Oh, I'm glad you know where he is. I thought he was at Bastion. Oh, good. Is it Labau? What's the name of the church there? Christ. Christ, Christ Labau. Uh, so that's really good. I really, I really miss that guy when he's gone. I was walking around all this morning like, what am I supposed to be doing now? Where am I? Where? <laughs> Anyway, the elders are going to, I think, put in for overtime for me because I had to read the scriptures today. <laughs> okay. Uh, why was I talking about the vicar? How great a sermon was? Oh, yeah, don't tell him I said that. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we give you thanks that you are kind and merciful and, and good to us, that you smile upon us, that you forgive our sins, that you delight in us, that you are making a way for us to come through the troubles of this life and, and death to be with you in eternal life. We pray that we would rejoice in these gifts. We pray that, uh, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, um, make our joy in you apparent to all around us. We pray that you would call many to faith. You would set us, your people, as a light on top of a hill so that more and more would be drawn out of the darkness into the light of the kingdom of your love. We pray that we would rejoice in the callings that you've given us, that you would use us to strengthen the estates that you've created, uh, and that through repentance and faith, you would bring us at last to life eternal. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, last week we talked about the Lord's Supper, the benefit of the Lord's Supper, and closed communion. With the closed communion, the main thing there was to remember that the, the Lord's Supper is a confession of faith. So where we go to the altar is where we... Going to the Lord's Supper amongst everything else is also like signing a petition. So you wouldn't just go, someone says, hey, can you sign this petition? You want to read it to make sure you agree with it before you sign it. So catechism class is like reading the petition of the Lord. It's like there's a Christianity is is a, ser, a series of assertions. It's, it's more than that, but it's not less than that. There's certain truths that are Christian truths. Certain truths that Christian people say about the world. Certain truths that God reveals. And so we say yes to those truths. We say, yes, my name belongs to that confession, uh, to that altar. And so uh, we prepare people to make that confession. And we say, hey, if you don't share that confession, then, uh, then we don't share the Lord's Supper. Not at least not yet. So 
Uh, we, we wait before we have communion together for a catechism class. If we don't agree, we don't, we don't have communion together. We rejoice that people are there. We desire for them to come to the Lord's Supper. Someone asked, what is the standard? What, is the, what are the things that we have to have unity on for us to commune together? And we, we brought forth the article in the Augsburg Confession, Article 7 and 8, which says it's enough for the unity of the church that we agree on the gospel rightly preached and the sacraments rightly administered. And that is not a very long list. But in a way, that little list, the gospel rightly preached and the sacraments rightly administered, is pretty comprehensive. In other words, if you just look at the different denominations, uh, from our perspective, from the Lutheran perspective, when we look at the other denominations, these are our main concerns. What do they say about the word of God, law and gospel, the, the, the redemption in Christ and how it comes to us, the gospel? What do they say about baptism and the Lord's Supper? Those are our major concerns. Now, not every other church has those major concerns. In other words, some churches have different standards of unity. Um, most of the Protestant ecumenical movement has a, they, they want to have unity around three things. Uh, the word, the sacraments, and church structure or church discipline. They think that it's enough to, to, to not have fellowship if you have a different church structure or church discipline. We, we say, no, that's not part of the of unity of the church. We, we don't take that as part of it. The Catholic Church has one principle of unity. This gets me so worked up. I should not even bring it up. I need, I'm going to have to have like, I don't know, like a therapist to, that should just call me on Monday and say, did you teach about Roman Catholicism yesterday? Then we need to make it. A, oh, I have this, I have, Andrew got me for my birthday a watch and it's supposed to monitor my like heart rate and everything. I could just see if my, vitals go up and spike when I start talking about the Catholic Church says that the unity of the church consists in the Pope ah. okay that's enough we'll talk about something else but we say no that what does the unity of the church consist in the gospel and the sacraments and why why are those two things enough for the unity of the church because the church is those who believe in Jesus that's what the church is. Those who trust in Christ, those who believe in Jesus. And how does the Holy Spirit create faith? Through the gospel and through the sacraments. So if you want to find where people are who have faith, you look for the things that the Holy Spirit does to create faith. And there you find the church. Right? And we say that if something is ha happening, if the gospel, for example, is confused or mixed up with some false teaching, or if baptism is mixed up with some false teaching, or the Lord said it's mixed up with some false teaching, then, 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 then something is in the way of the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so that's why we want to have that unity of doctrine and confession. Uh, no, not many other people think that. Most people have, most, most, Christians, oh, let me let me be careful here. Most, how do we say this? Most people doing theology nowadays uh, have a despair over theological unity. So if you talk to to like seminary, not, not, not talking about in the Lutheran church, but I mean, maybe it seeps in, but if you like, if you were to go to a seminary, here in town, 
what seminary? If you go over to the Episcopalian seminary or you go over to the Presbyterian seminary, what's that called? You know, there's two seminaries. You can walk to two seminaries from here. You guys know that? Austin Presbyterian Seminary and there's Episcopalian Seminary over there. I, I go over there and just to see what books they're selling in the library because uh, they all their books are pulling out of the library. They sell for a quarter and it's all, always the Orthodox stuff that they're getting rid of. <laughs> the good stuff. <laughs> That, well, apparently that's the thing. Were you telling me that that, that the Seminex, the that the Seminex libraries is crazy. So okay, so you could, if you were to walk over to those seminaries and ask the faculty and say, "Hey, do you think the church will ever be united in doctrine?" They would say, "No, because the, everything for them is just opinion. Theology is just different competing opinions." Now that that is. Can we just sit on that just for a little bit? That's a subtle point, but it's a very dangerous point. If we think that all of the different theologies is, is simply different opinions. But let's take the Lord's Supper, for example. Remember, we had the four doctrines of the Lord's Supper, the Catholic doctrine, transubstantiation, the Lutheran doctrine, the, the body and blood, the, the, the Reformed doctrine, which is the real presence, the, 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 the Baptist doctrine, which is the memorial meal. So there's four different doctrines of the Lord's Supper. Now, what, what, what can creep in is the idea is, ah, oh, that's just, well, that's just your opinion. We say, hey, it's the body and the blood. And someone says, well, that's your opinion. And other people have different opinions. Now, if that's true, if that's true, then there should be a wide, deep charity for different opinions. I might have opinions about something, but if there are my opinions, I have to be very charitable if you have opinions about something because the chances are pretty good that your opinions are better than mine. If I have opinions, this is something that you can only have an opinion on. If I have an opinion on like uh, what cheese is best, which is obviously pepper jack. <laughs> and anyone who prefers any other cheese to pepper jack is obviously wrong. Now, okay, so that's an opinion, right? And I have to hold my opinion very loosely. If you are crazy and you like a different cheese better, <laughs> then I still, uh, that's not a reason for breaking fellowship, right? We, we have to hold, but what, so what, what, what happens if theological assertions just become opinions? Like, well, I really like the idea it's the body and the blood, but your opinion is it's a memorial meal. So how can we disagree over that if it's an opinion? And what happens is if, if we take theology and we just say that it's a, a bunch of different competing opinions, then, then there's no idea that, that there should be any, that, that it should matter, right? Can you imagine if I, if, if I said, uh, 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 if you said, oh, do you, how do you like your neighbors? Says, oh, I, our neighbors are horrible. They eat blue cheese. <laughs> you would say, well, I'm a real jerk, right? For not, you know, for not getting along with my neighbors because of an opinion. But that's that's how people will oftentimes understand our doctrine of close communion. Because they assume that it's a matter of opinion. And then we're saying, well, if you like a different doctrine, then you cannot come here to church with us. It's a, it's a fight over opinion. But to say that all you can achieve in the conversation of theology is an opinion is really a, it's, it's really a form of theological despair. It's saying that I can never really know what the Lord says about something. You see, I can never really be confident 
about what's on the altar, if it is the body and blood of Jesus or if it isn't. I can never really know if it was right to baptize the baby or not, or if when I was baptized, I was adopted into God's family or not, or when the absolution is spoken, if I'm really forgiven or not, if it's opinion, if it's opinion. So we have to, this is probably the fundamental uh, place where we have to, where we have to do our theological work is we have to resist the temptation to theological despair. And we have to say, no, I can know what's true. Not because I'm smart enough or holy enough or that I've studied long enough or that I went to the right seminary or the whatever. I can, I can know what's true. Why? Because the Lord has said it in simple words in the Bible. And we say, okay. We have to be convinced of that. We have to be convinced of that. If, if that's not true, if we can't know what God thinks about something, then, the, then everything falls apart. The church falls apart. The faith falls apart. Everything falls apart. But most people are right on the, on the edge of, of giving it all up. So we have to say, no, no, uh, the, the Lord loves us enough. The love, Lord loves us so much that he speaks to us in plain words so that we can know, yeah, this is what the Bible says. Now, it might take a little bit of work. We might have to peel through our own assumptions. We might have to work through the languages and stuff like this. But we cannot give up that, that hope that we can actually know what the mind of the Lord is. And I think that what's undercutting a lot of, I mean, the reason why closed communion is so strange is that because the church has really kind of handed itself over to theological despair. You can't really know that for sure. And, and when we say, yeah, we can know that for sure, that strikes the world as arrogant, doesn't it? When I, I can say with confidence that, that Jesus rose from the dead, for example. I know Jesus rose from the dead. The Bible says Jesus rose from the dead. On the third day, he rose again. I know that. And, and, the, and people say, well, how can you really know? How can you know anything? How can you know that for sure? Or even if you take a Lutheran distinctive. I know that we're born again in baptism. I know that. I know it because the scripture teaches it in plain words. And people say, well, that's so arrogant. You're saying that you're right and everybody else is wrong. No, no. I, I it has nothing to do with me. It's not what it's not my opinion. It's here in the plain words of scripture. But that kind of that kind of theological confidence strikes the the, the world as prideful. It should be for us, and this should be the whole theological exercise, is that we are humbling ourselves to stand under the word of God. So that what I think, in fact, doesn't matter. I'll tell you, there's a lot of things that I wish were not true. There's a lot of things in the Bible that I wish were not true. I wish it were not true that the unbeliever would be condemned and suffer in hell eternally. I wish that were not true. If I was writing the Bible, I wouldn't put it in there. But it's there. So I don't have the, I, I don't have the choice to, to have a different doctrine, to throw out the stuff. I, I mean, it's, it's not about me or my own opinion. It's about what the Lord's word says. Yeah, Walter? Just the working of the Holy Spirit. Yes. And he preaches the faith in us to believe. Mm -hmm. That's right. So the, the Lord must increase, we must decrease. And the Holy Spirit is... is getting our stuff out of the way so that we can 
grasp on. Give that the Holy Spirit gives us that faith in the Lord's word. Yeah. Now you guys got to understand how weird we seem when we have this attitude, how weird we seem to the world. But oh well, that's kind of a blessing. Uh yeah. Nathan. What really strikes me as odd is what people tend to have very strong convictions about something. Yes. Uh, these days it's mostly politics mm -hmm. because once religion becomes a matter of opinion, uh, then politics is the thing that people will fight over. And so you never hear, I don't know, but, and, it's, and it's kind of sad these days because nothing ranks up to the level of the word of God. But you see a lot of people who are willing to calmly, and I guess this is a good thing, willing to calmly discuss theological differences. But when it comes to politics and like everything is going to fall for most Christ, um, I mean, I have very definite political opinions. I would not, uh, but I don't think that this is, it's not as important as theology. Right. And yet some people are, I mean, Frank, I work at Starbucks, and frankly, some people are more particular about the drink they get from Starbucks than about their theology. That's right. Most people, I would say. <laughs> it's a sad state. Now, Jim had the question. Uh, is that what you're, you're uh, are you ready for that or you have a different question? Well, it's, it's uh, consistent with what you were talking about. Is, is the practice of close communion, uh, is it mandatory in the Missouri the question is, is a practice of close communion mandatory in the, in the Missouri Synod? The answer is that the churches and the pastors of the Missouri Synod have promised to practice close communion. Uh, the reality is that most do not. And, uh, and that's, I think it's maybe because of expediency, maybe because of fear, maybe because it's hard to turn people away, maybe because, I'll tell you the hardest thing for me is that the practice of closed communion makes so little sense to most people that you'd love to have an hour to explain what's going to happen before it happens, but you just don't have it practically. And so, uh, so those are all the, the troubles that are going on. What do we do about that? Because we say, hey, this is a big deal. And I'll, so I'll tell, you, I'll tell you, here's a story. This is a good one. My in-laws, who are not yet Lutheran, we're working on it. <laughs> I think they probably are, but they have not joined the Lutheran church yet. They're holding out. <laughs> Maybe they just don't want me to be right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, that's not right. They're, you know, they're wrestling through the theology. They grew up Presbyterian, and they're wrestling through the theology, and they're doing it seriously. But they, they don't like close communion at all. And they you know, can't come to communion with, the, their, with their daughter, with their, fan, with their grandkids. They, so they'll come to church and they feel like they're excluded because they're on, on their own. It's, it's a really hard, hard thing for them. And uh, they moved up to Monument a, a number of years ago uh, when we were still in Colorado and Aurora. So they were pretty close. And they visited the, the Lutheran church, the Missouri Synod church right down the street from them. And they said, Hey, we could have communion at that church. What's, what's your problem? <laughs> now, that is, that's bad, right? That's like, you know, this is like, um, uh, mom said no, so I'm going to ask dad. 
And that starts to embitter the kids towards mom. So when we're not all on the same page, it is, uh, it's, it's, that's no bueno. Because then, you know, the people are like, oh, St. Paul, you know, they're just a bunch of grumpy, uh, rude, closed off. But here's the, you know, the, the friendly, welcoming churches. So, so if we're not all practicing the same thing, it's bad. So what do you do about it? So, yeah. yeah. Well, um, the, the concept of sinning implies walking together. Yep. So... And, and in fact, that's the basis of fellowship. Mm -hmm. So then the fundamental question is, are we in fellowship with these other churches? Mm -hmm. Right. And, and then the follow-on is, how about the supervision of ecclesiastical? Yeah. So the, just to repeat the question was, you know, synod means we're walking together. So how do we maintain fellowship if we're not walking together? But also the importance of, is it favorite cheese or is it important? Right. Is it important or not? Is it important? Who cares if we're in fellowship? Right? Yeah. But here on this, the idea of close community, community practice is pretty important. Yeah. Carrie? Thank you. Yeah. Oh, there's so many hands up. Uh, let, so let's go this way and we'll work our way this way. Yeah, Gordon? Two things. One, when we were in Ohio, we actually in the district had a pastor that had a motion that the district would consider that he would give them to all the members. And um, obviously it includes Jesus, but I, right, it's, that's, that's part of the trouble, but it's just the trouble that we live in. And so in the, so in a way, those, the churches who have a loose communion practice, you can understand it, right? It's, it's easy, it's easy to believe, you know, we talk, we should probably think about this quite a bit. You know, it's easy to believe in, in closed communion, as long as you don't have any, like, as long as your brothers haven't left the church, you know, as long as your as long as your kids still confess the creed. But when you have those people that you love that are now excluded from the fellowship of the church, now it becomes hard. It's I mean, it's easy to think about marriage as a, a man and a woman and that two men can't get married until until your nephew invites you to the 
you know, to his wedding with his boyfriend or what, whatever. Or it's easy to believe in the doctrine of hell until someone that you dearly love renounces the faith and dies. And so, uh, you know, on paper, these things are easy. But then when, when they really start to cut, when Jesus, as he promised, when he says, I came to bring not peace, but a sword, and I'm going to divide up families. And you start to feel that the, the sword slice in the family, that's, that's, when the, that's when it gets hard. And just ignoring it doesn't make that hardness go away. But we should be, and I, and I want this, there's two things that are happening here. When we, when we come to worship that, and we practice close communion, and that is we want to be faithful to the, to the Lord's word and to the thing that's confessed and to say, this is true. And it cannot, we cannot act like it's not true or like it doesn't matter. And yet we, we must know that the Lord Jesus is doing everything to call people into the fellowship of his altar. So that, so that closed communion uh, is a, it's not a wall, it's a gate. And the purpose of the gate is that it would be opened. So that we, the thing that we long for, I hope you hear me say this every Sunday, this, I, I mean it with everything. That, that, that the thing that we long for is that more and more people would be communing with us. It's just that that, that communion together has to be, you, you got to be ready for it. Uh, you, you, there, that you, so that you can join in that confession. But the desire should be of the church is not, oh, we have to protect the Lord's body and blood from the unbeliever. That's not, that's not the doctrine of close communion. The doctrine of close communion is, hey, there's a joyful unity of doctrine that the Lord wants to accomplish in his church. So let's work it, but it's hard, but let's not stop working at it. Let's not stop praying. Let's not stop talking. Let's not stop teaching. Let's not stop arguing with one another. No, uh, I'm, uh, I can't remember who. So sorry, Shannon, I, you were here. Um, Jordan, was, were you next? Yeah, there's a, so that, that's right. So that uh, re we're remembering that there's a risk in the Lord's Supper too. So that's the pastoral application. That's being a good steward of the mystery. Yeah. Which is again, alongside closed communion, but next door to it. Yeah. Yeah. Because what we're not saying in closed communion is the person who can't commune is not a Christian. No, no. If they're baptized, they're a Christian. We assume that most people who can't commune are Christian. That's an important thing. And then we have a unity of baptism. In fact, how about that? That the Lord gives different sort of, of unity, standards of unity. So I suppose it's like this, like not every American is a Texan, but every Texan is an American. I'm going to see if that's it for now. I was waiting to see. <laughs> Who was going to say it? So that's, so there's a, there's a, there's a lot of Christians who are not Lutheran, a lot of Christians. There's a lot of Americans who are not Texas, et cetera. So that's, so, and we rejoice in that, in the fellowship that we have with all the baptized. We rejoice in that fellowship and we rejoice that those who are baptized, that will, that will be in eternal life with them. 
there's a there's a lot of people who will who re, will be rejoicing in the resurrection who we don't have fellowship with now. It's a, it's a different thing. It's not. Those are two different fellowships. Okay. Yes, Doctor Zuck. Zuck. Okay. So there's a couple of different things. So I will do. So I will normally. It's the question. The question that I'll ask at the rail is: Have you been confirmed? And that's the. That's the question I ask. I don't know a better question. That question is very inadequate because the person could have been confirmed in the Catholic Church, for example. Yeah. Yeah. I'm always, I have to tell you guys that I'm not, that I'm not consistent on this because I'm looking at a million different things. So I'm looking to see if that person is with someone, if they're visiting with someone who would have talked to them, if they look like they know what they're doing or not. So sometimes when people are at the rail and they're like, <laughs> and I'm, so like that so then i'll you know try to gently i mean i put my hand on the shoulder and say hey have you been confirmed no if they say no then i'll say have you been baptized and if they say say they say yes they've been baptized and i'll say could i give you a blessing and talk to you after the service and i'll give them a blessing uh if people are there and they're visiting and they look like they they know what they're doing and, and I've seen that they heard the announcement that we had at the beginning of the service, then I'll then I'm assuming that they're in fellowship with us. That's an I, I make I'm making those kinds of assumptions. So it's I, I don't have a consistent practice. Ah, uh, sure, Richard. I grew up in Illinois as a child. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know, we should have like, the, you know how the army, the military, they have those like coins. <laughs> we, we should have like a confirmation coin. And you're like, <laughs> they used to have that my uh, they in fact my uh the old practice you know the uh, here my dad tells me the story I, it's an interesting theory that my dad has is that he, he tells about how they used to have the idea some of you might remember this that you would go if you wanted to go to the lord's supper it wasn't every sunday maybe it was once a month or once a quarter and you would go and announce on saturday to the pastor you'd go to the off you'd go to the office and you'd say and he would question you, but normally it'd be like, "Hey, we're coming on. We're coming out in tomorrow for communion, whole family." And they would prepare the Lord's Supper for only the people who have announced. 
You know, that if you announce you're coming and everyone else can come to church, but you're not coming to summer. And my and they even would have coins. My dad would was studying this because he my dad, I think I told you guys, used to work for James Avery. And so they were doing all this religious jewelry, and this was something they were looking into. They had these different coins that Pastor would give you a coin and then you'd turn it into the usher when you were coming forward like this. But then something happened, and that is that the pastors got telephones, and so people would call on the phone, hey, we're going to be there, and the pastor, you know, and then, so they didn't have the face-to-face interaction, and then it all sort of broke down, and then it broke down further when the pastors got email. I'm sorry I never returned your emails. I, <laughs> I was trying to think about that, the days when, the, when there was no telephone. Oh, <laughs> can you imagine? What do they do all day? Anyway. <laughs> Like the pa- you know, the pastor, there's no way to get a hold of the pastor. Like, someone go down to the church and see if you can find the guy. <laughs> the scope of everything. Yeah. Anyhow, anyhow. Uh, that So that now there's, you've, you've lost that, we've lost that sort of personal contact, that pastoral care that goes along with the Lord's Supper. Uh, I don't know how to get it back. Yeah. Uh, Gary. Yeah. I've always wondered. Many people contact you after the church and say, I'd like to talk to you about communion. Mostly, I'm contacting them. There are a lot of those contacts. And if, and if I was came into the church and I heard your talk at the beginning and I figured out this guy's an elder, he's standing up there with Yeah, me. yeah, yeah. So I talked to him and I said, you know, I've been a Christian all my life and I want to take the look. Yeah, that, so normally the elders will find me <laughs> and talk to me. Uh, and, and, and then normally, I, I mean, you know, we want to be as welcoming and joyful as you can and say, hey, you, what, you know, what's church background and, and say, well, you know, I've been uh, at the non-denominational church and I grew up in the Methodist church and I've been going to Hill Country or Cowboy Church or whatever. And I'd say, I'm so glad you're here. This is really wonderful. Uh, we have different, we have a different doctrine or teaching about the Lord's Supper. Uh, we, we say it's the body and blood and Cowboy Church says it's a, a symbol. And I, I, would, I really want to take you out for coffee and talk to you about this this week. Uh, if you're comfortable coming for a blessing, I'd encourage you to do that. But don't feel like you need to. But if you're comfortable coming for a blessing, that's wonderful. So that's how I normally say Get them into the new Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, it is a sad thing. I mean, the sadness though, here, here's the problem. The, the sadness is not that we can't have communion together. The sadness is that we don't agree on the gifts of God. And it just shows up in the Lord's Supper. So the sadness, the divisions of the church is a source of sadness. It should be profound sadness for us. It is profound sadness for Jesus. But those differences show up at the Lord's Supper. So it's like, well, you guys know we're praying for my dad. He got, um, he had cancer on his pancreas. That's what he's getting treatment for over in Houston. Uh, and, but that showed up in the fact that he lost a ton of weight. And the reason was because the tumor was blocking the excretion of something into the stomach and he couldn't digest food and all this sort of stuff. And so they had to go through. So the symptom was, was weight loss, but the actual problem was the a tumor. And, and, and this is how it is in the church. The problem is that there's all different doctrines. That's the cancer. And it shows up in us not being able to commune together. But the, so, but the, so, the, so, so we have to say, look, we're going to commune together. In fact, we should say, and, and I try to do this on purpose, that everybody who I can't commune with, I try to take them out for coffee or for lunch and say, look, I'll eat with you and I'll buy you lunch. You know, the problem is not sitting at the table. The problem is not eating together. The problem is that I, like, I don't want to be seen with you. I, I'll eat anything with you. <laughs> Turkey, salad, whatever, you know, I, that's the problem. The, if, we're, it, but yeah, but it's the body, the body and blood of Jesus is the different meal that, that has a certain amount of, that, that has a, that, that has different requirements there. So, so that um, the, the Orthodox do it this way. And I think this might be a good practice. Although we, it'd be different. you know, have you been to the Orthodox? They'll have the bread that they'll eat and for the Lord's Supper. But if you're not in fellowship with them, they have a big basket of bread that they just pass out at the end. So you don't get the Lord's body and blood, but you can have bread with us. <laughs> and that's the point. It's like, are, are we not good enough to, to eat with you? No, you're, no, that's not the problem. Uh, the problem is we don't agree on these doctrines. And that's, the, and, and that's where the angst is. But because people can't feel the angst there, it's like... Uh, it's like reflected pain. It's, you know, that like if you, I don't know, I'm not a doctor in this way, but like you get a, you get a tumor here and it shows up and you feel it in your back. Well, it's a problem is over here, but it's showing up somewhere different. Yeah, Nathan? I mean, to some extent, it's to be expected because in a way, close communion is practiced about law that we are to be united in doctrine and not to have divisions at the table. And so that sort of, and, and the old Adam loves to buck against any sort of any sort of pronouncement of God's law. To, and and I think another thing that that we as as part of our consumer culture have lost is the idea that any sadness can be a good thing. Mm. Any sadness is important. Um, we're always focused on the extinction of sadness, the extinction of suffering. And I'm not saying that like we're not supposed to pick the way that we suffer or something like that. We're not. We're, we're not self-black players or anything right, like that. Right, right, right. But the idea that there is 
existence of sadness or the existence of suffering cannot mean it is automatically to be dismissed, extinguished, driven out of mind. That's nice. So that we we you know if we just tell someone hey you can't commune not yet and and if they and if that consists for a long time because a person consists just um, holds to a different doctrine that's a cause for weeping and sadness. <clears throat> Here, here's how it here, here's how it says it in Hebrews 13, which is our lesson, our epistle lesson today. If you were in early church, I don't know if you if you picked up on it. So Hebrews 13, verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Did you pick up on that? So that means that the Christian church has a table, an altar, where those who serve at the tabernacle, that is the priests in Jerusalem, they can't come to this one because there's a different confession for the body of those animals talking about the temple whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth from to him outside the camp bearing his reproach so that the Christian no longer goes to the temple to offer sacrifices, but we have an altar that's out in the woods. Uh, in fact, the idea here in Hebrews is that by going to the Lord's altar, we, we are, we're leaving the thing that is impressive and there's a reproach in going to the Lord's supper that says that we're apart. Ah, uh, there's a lot there. There's a lot in the epistle. Ooh, did I want to preach on the epistle to you guys today? Uh, but we didn't. Maybe I will. It's not too late. <laughs> Here's the verse 15. Oh, no, verse 14. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. So the Lord's Supper is like a meal in exile. All right. Uh, so we've got three minutes to talk about vocation, three estates, and the liturgy. <laughs> I knew that was going to happen. Well, this is uh, maybe just to say a couple of very brief things. Uh, so number one, the, uh, one of the distinctions that we see in the scriptures is that the Lord uh, calls ordinary things holy. And this is a very comforting doctrine for us. So a lot of times when you come to church, it's like the things that happen at church are the holy things and the things that happen in the state or the things that happen in the world are the unholy things. No, we understand that all of the callings that we have are holy callings. It's, it's not just holy uh the holy ministry it's the holy fatherhood you you who fathers have a holy office you mothers have a holy office you children have a holy office holy childhood how many of you does that define <laughs> holy grandparenthood holy citizenship all of these things are holy because they why are they holy because they're established by the lord's word so a lot of times in the church, we think, well, we got to do stuff at church if we want to do good works, godly works. No, no. When you're serving faithfully at home, when you're doing, when you're working faithfully at work, you are serving the Lord. That's our doctrine of vocation. The famous quote that no one's ever found from Luther is that the mother changing the diaper does a holier work than the monk praying the hours. Now, no one can ever find that in Luther, but I'm sure if you asked him to say it, he would. 
because the idea is certainly there, right? So we think all the holy things have to do with the word of God. We should have things. We should be to do with the word of God in prayer, but we know that the Lord is, has blessed also the ordinary. So that's really good, actually. It gives us comfort that it's not just when we come to church that we're doing holy things, but that when we're home, when we're at work, when we're with our neighbors, when we're, when we're arguing about politics, all of it. That's all the Lord has set us in these callings. There are three estates, remember? The, the, these are three governments or three hierarchies that the Lord has established, the home and the state and the church, the hearth, the altar, and the gate, the court, I suppose. Uh, and that all of us are in all of these estates. We're all in the family by virtue of being born. Some of us have extended uh, family vocations. So some of you are have brothers and sisters. Some of you have uh, a spouse. Some of you have children. Some of you have grandchildren. Some of you, let me see, who has great grandchildren? I just want to, this is great. We got three, four, four great grandparents here. God be praised for that. Any great greats? Hey, all right. Great greats. Woo. That's fantastic. So that, uh, so this is, um, these are, God be praised, these are godly offices in the family. And also the Lord has, has appointed the state. He's given the sword to those who govern and rule to punish wickedness and to reward righteousness. And so we recognize that even government is given by God. That doesn't mean that everything it does is right. That's for sure. But the uh, but Christian is called to submit to the government as much as possible, as much as we can without violating God's word, to have a general attitude of submission. Also in the family, that's what's going on, a general attitude of submission. That's what the Christian is called to. Uh, and then in the church also. The Lord has uh, put us in the church by baptism, the order of his word. So these three estates really make the kind of the foundational structure of the, of the whole world, really. Uh, and we always want to be meditating on these three estates in our place in them. Okay, one quick word about the liturgy, 30 seconds. Do you think I could do it? <laughs> there, remember in the book of Revelation that... It talks about how the devil's cast out of heaven and he's prowling around in the world and that he's overcome by two things. Remember what they are? The word and the blood. The devil is overcome by the word and the blood. And that is the basic structure of our liturgy. If you, if you want to think about why do I go to church on Sunday? It's because the Lord brings his word and his blood to overthrow the devil. So the first part of the service is the service of the word. That's where we have the name of the Lord, Kyrie, Gloria, readings, sermon, confession of the creed, hymns. That's the service of the word. And then we have the service of the blood or the service of the meal. That starts with the prayer of the church, the preface, the Agnus Dei, the Lord's Prayer, the words of institution, the Lamb of God. The, the nunc diminis, the distribution, all those parts are the service of the blood. But the whole liturgy, it's like if you could, if you had a pond, you're imagining a pond and you had two rocks and you drop one rock in and it ripples out this way and you drop another rock and it ripples out that way. That's our whole service. If you just take the pond of the scripture and you drop in the word and the blood, then the liturgy shapes up this way. It ripples before, Kyrie, introit, 
creed, hymn, and then it ripples out this way. The Lord's Prayer, words of institution, distribution, milk and menace. So the parts of the liturgy are expanding out from those two gifts, the word and the blood. So I, I'd like for that picture to be for the liturgy. Okay, we're going to call it quits. Uh, uh, oh, yeah. Oh, I remember why I was telling you about the vicar, because I think I talked the vicar into that we'll try to do this, maybe not this year, but going forward, every Lent will go through the catechism on Sunday morning. So every year we'll have a catechism review uh, in the season of Lent, and I think that'll be, uh, that'll be fun. So uh, we did it this summer. Hopefully it's helpful. You all are now reconfirmed. Uh, so that's great. Uh, yes, question, Jonathan. She's the chaplain for the Missouri Synod. Now, that's not this Thursday, but next Thursday. So September 8th, 9th, and 10th are the dates for this conference. It's unbelievable. I was looking at the schedule. I said, what's Jonathan up to with this conference? And I, and I said, how did he get all these? This is an incredible conference that you put together. Amazing, actually. So September 8th, 9th, and 10th, and, and all the details are on the website. You can look at that, too. So, okay, let's pray. Oh, Lord, we pray for your Holy Spirit so that we would abide in hope. And especially in the hopefulness and the confidence of your word, your truth. We pray that you would preserve uh, your word so that we might know those things which, which we need to know most of all, that we are sinners who are redeemed and forgiven by the suffering and blood of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that this word would spring forth with peace and wisdom and confidence in our own hearts and lives. That you would cause the kingdom of this word to continue to come among us and expand. We give you thanks that you've given us such great gifts in your word and in your blood, and we pray that by them you would continue to overthrow the devil and his kingdom of darkness. Give us the courage to stand and to confess uh, and to suffer uh, and to pray, trusting in your kindness. We give you thanks for all those confirmants who have been studying now to be able to join uh, the supper. We pray that you would bless uh, their communion, that you would give to them and to all your people this uh, 
joyful promise that you forgive our sins. For we ask this all through the same Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. Amen. Bless we the Lord. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Thanks, everyone.